0: You are now listening to the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. All right, guys, welcome to the 10th episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. We have made it to double digits. I know I released a little bit of an update for the show last week, and I know that you were also expecting that this was going to be a show about the structures of scientific revolution. I'm very excited about that show, but based on the recent developments surrounding abortion, I really wanted to make sure that I could include an episode about that. And so I have to give a shout out to the two people that kind of motivated me to do that. I was talking to my very good friend Matt, who is a listener of this show. And he was saying that I needed to, if I wanted to really make this podcast successful, be a little bit more flexible and have episodes that were up to date and current. I knew I wanted to do an episode on the abortion debate within the libertarian movement. And I was thinking that I was going to wait until my regu- my regularly scheduled slate of episodes and have this come out sometime in July. But Matt was like, you know, it's a hot a hot issue right now. And so you should release an episode of it as quickly as possible. And that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to be able to do That with this show, which is why if you listen to episode nine point one that I released last week, I'm going to be making some changes to the way that this show works. We're going to cover the same issues; it's going to be mostly the same, but this is just going to allow me to to kind of address issues as they arise in society. The other one is I had a discussion. With Jacob Daniel, who is the host of the Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy podcast on Twitter. I am on Twitter now. You can follow me at Pro Liberty Pod, so please do that. Um, but I, I, I put a post on Twitter uh, up after the Dobbs decision a few weeks ago, essentially saying that I feel like libertarians could all agree that the abortion issue was complicated. And uh, Jacob Daniel kind of pushed back and said, Well, abortion is murder. And I, uh, I, I told him, you know, that I just struggle with kind of the legality of everything. And, and we had a very great conversation about that. I would highly recommend checking out his podcast. because He's got some really good stuff on there and he's been doing it for a few years. So it's just a great, uh, great podcast altogether. And so after having that conversation with him on Twitter, it really motivated me to get this episode out. So I know we were all expecting that we were going to take a philosophical look at science, what it is and what it can't do this week, but we're going to push that back until next week. And I want to thank Matt and Jacob for pushing me in that direction And this is the reason really why I wanted to have the show today, because I have a lot of mixed feelings about the abortion debate, or at least about the legality of abortion. And I wanted a chance to kind of lay out why I think for libertarians, this is a more complicated issue that requires a lot of philosophical nuance in order to fully appreciate and understand. And I wanted to take a chance, uh, I wanted to get a chance to address that directly on this show. So to kind of put this in a big picture perspective, one of the fundamental tenets of libertarianism is the non-aggression principle, and this is the idea that you should not force or coerce anyone to do anything else, that we should never aggress against other people, and this is fundamental to libertarian philosophy, and this is one of the reasons why a very traditional Christian like me can be in favor of things like drug legalization and sex work and all of this kind of stuff. It doesn't mean that I agree with them morally, but all of those activities are consensual, they are done. Uh, they're they're not done to anybody else. So, for instance, with sex work, if there are two consensual adults that want to engage in sex for pay, I, I think it's completely immoral and unbiblical, and it it is totally against all of the principles of my worldview. But it does not violate the non-aggression principle, and therefore I feel like it should be legal, even if I don't think it's moral. And so I'll make moral arguments against that, but I I don't wanna I don't wanna enlist the government to try to ban that kind. Kind of behavior, and it's the same thing for drugs. I think drugs are very dangerous, but it's a it's a it's mostly a victimless crime, right? Like if you're just taking drugs by yourself and you can manage your life responsibly, no one should stop you from doing that. It's not wise. I don't think it's moral, but uh, they, the government should not get involved to stop you from doing that. Now, from the perspective of the non-aggression principle, abortion can be viewed. By libertarians in two ways. Uh, number one, and this is kind of the most I think, or at least up until recently, I felt like this had been the most popular one in the libertarian circle. They focus on the rights of the 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 ma the mother, the woman who's bearing the child. And so, uh, from that perspective, if a woman gets pregnant, then she has a right to abort the baby. But the other one is to approach it from the right of the fetus. All right, so if you believe that the fetus, the baby uh, inside of the mother, is an a actual life, then based on the non-aggression principle, we should not do anything to damage the life of the fetus. So both of those platforms, both sides, can appeal to the libertarian idea of the non-aggression principle. And this is why the Mises Caucus, when they took over the Libertarian Party a couple weeks ago, took the abortion plank out of the party platform, because it is a really big live debate debate within the libertarian movement as to whether or not abortion violates the the non-aggression principle. Now, science does not help us deal with this question in the ways that a lot of people have traditionally thought that it was. And next week, we're going to talk about the structures of scientific revolutions and how science actually works. And basically, science is a method that allows us to analyze and describe phenomenon that take place in the natural world. And so the scientific method does a really good job of producing data, but that data has to be interpreted into a larger framework. And when scientists do that interpretive work, they're moving from science into philosophy or metaphysics. And so the interpretation of the data that is produced by science is itself not scientific. And so science cannot give us answers to metaphysical questions such as what is life or when does life begin? Both of these questions are uh, completely contingent upon somebody's views on whether or not abortion violates the non-aggression principle uh, and whether or not abortion is morally, uh, kind of morally, uh, morally viable, morally w- worthwhile, and so the three ways that we have to address the abortion issue, since science doesn't really help us out here, are from a theological, philosophical, and legal perspective. And from the purpose, uh, for the purpose of this show, I'm going to focus on the theological and the philosophical first, because if you're a Protestant like me or a Christian more generally your theological position on this will be your philosophical position on this and so i want to make it i want to make it clear from the beginning here that from a theological or philosophical perspective all attempts to define the beginning of life to define when exactly in the womb life begins are completely arbitrary. And so one of the best examples of this is late term abortion when you essentially abort the baby before it comes out of the womb. Of course, it's very obvious to show that that is an arbitrary definition of life because uh, 5 seconds before the baby is born, it's the exact same developmentally as when it comes out of the womb. And so it's completely arbitrary to say that the life is viable once it's left the once it's left the mother when 5 seconds before the baby was developmentally ex- the same. And if you push this logic backwards, some people will say that when the baby begins to have a heartbeat, that this is when life begins. But again, the, the first heartbeat happens in a moment in time. And so you can't tell me that like one second before the first heartbeat of the fetus in the womb, the, the, the baby wasn't alive. And then once it has its first heartbeat, all of a sudden, everything changes from a value perspective. Some people have said when the baby starts moving. But again, the problem with that is that the second Before the baby makes its first move, it's somehow not a viable life, but then the second that it makes its first move, it is. Like all of these are completely arbitrary. And so, from my perspective, if you're going to use that logic, you have to take it all the way back to conception. So I really do believe that life begins at conception when the the seed fertilizes the egg. Um, and the Bible doesn't give any clear teaching on the issue of abortion. So from a Protestant perspective, we will talk about the early church at the end of this episode here. But there is no clear teaching on the issue of abortion in the Bible. But it's really really hard to deny the implication that life matters and that when a baby is in utero, that that is a viable life. And it's also understood in the Bible universally that sex leads to the creation of a baby. It's hilarious to me that we live in a society that worships science and biologically, the only function really of sexuality is to reproduce, but we've completely forgotten that that's the entire purpose of sex. And we've kind of ignored that that is biologically speaking, it's really, it, 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 that sex is only function from a biological perspective. So with all that in mind, I do believe that life begins as a at conception and as a libertarian I believe that an abortion is a violation of the natural rights of the baby that is in the womb and so personally I don't believe that it's moral to abort a fetus except if the mother's life is in danger. I do make an exception for that and I think the earliest Christians did as well as we're going to see towards the end of the episode. So From a theological and philosophical perspective, abortion from my mind is morally wrong. You cannot justify abortion at least convenience abortion when the life of the woman is not in real danger you cannot justify it morally from a philosophical or from a theological perspective but as a libertarian it's the legal issue that's the most challenging and for most of my life i've kind of gone back and forth like i'm not sure I, yes i i believe that abortion is morally wrong but do i have a right to impose that belief on other people because at the end of the day my understanding that life begins at conception is based based on my theological worldview. It's my Christian values that shape that understanding. And the problem is that we live in a society that doesn't share my theological or philosophical presuppositions. And so my concern is that I don't want to use the power of the law to force somebody to live by the values that arise out of my faith. And I, I don't always feel like I have a right to impose those values through law on other people, but I am very conflicted about this because on the one hand, I do think that abortion is murder, and if that's the case, then that's the case in, in every single circumstance and in every single situation unless the mother's life is in danger, and so if I believe that the baby inside of the womb is a viable human being, a living human being, I believe that that baby has rights, and as a Lockean, as a minarchist, I believe that the government's only responsibility is protect our natural rights. Therefore, the government should make abortion illegal. But again, I acknowledge that that conception of uh, the baby being a viable life within the womb is based on my philosophy and based on my theology. So it's a, it's, a, it's a manifestation of my worldview. And so when I want to make that illegal for other people, I'm essentially enforcing my values and my beliefs. I'm essentially telling other people that they have to live by those precepts. And so that's a really, really difficult position to be in. And as a libertarian, I've gone back and forth as to whether or not I think abortion ought to be legal and I fight against it uh, verbally. I try to convince people that abortion is not the right course of action or whether the government has a right to step in and tell people that they can't have an abortion. So this brings us to the recent Supreme Court Dobbs decisions, which essentially overturns the 1973 Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade. And as a libertarian who is conflicted not on the morality of abortion, but on whether or not it should be legal, I think that the Dobbs decision is a step in the right direction. I love like the Dobbs decisions. Now, I think that as you, as, as for usual when these things happen, I believe that conservatives have been taking a victory lap over the Dobbs decision for the wrong reason, and I think that liberals, uh, progressives, have been lamenting the Dobbs decision for the wrong reason. The fact of the matter is that I don't see any direct constitutional right for abortion, and as we're going to see a lot of commentators on, uh, on, on kind of my side of the libertarian movement have made the case that the original Roe versus Wade decision was based on kind of a misinterpretation of both the 9th and the 14th Amendments. And with an issue that's as philosophically difficult as abortion, the decision to send it back to the states, which is really what the Dobbs des- decision was all about, it wasn't about abortion per se, it was about whether or not the federal government had the right to make decisions about abortion for the entire country. And so within the Dobbs decisions, they said no, and they sent it back to the states. I think that this is the right. Step to take in this respect, and on an interpretive note, I am a, I am a constitutional originalist because, uh, and, and constitutional originalism is when you try to understand the Constitution in its original historical context. You don't view it as a living document whose me, or that the meaning of which changes over time. You try to understand the world in which the Constitution was written, and again, the intention of the people that were writing the Constitution. What were they trying to say when they wrote it? It. And I do I, I, I have this exact same approach to the Bible. So the reason why I am a constitutional originalist is because, as I said on episode six or seven of this show, when we talked about the rules for interpreting the Bible, I believe that the Bible has to be understood in its historical context as well. And one of the really unfortunate things about the world in which we live today is that we treat the Bible and the Constitution differently than any other historical source. Like the interpretive methods that a lot of people use to understand the Bible and to understand the Constitution are radically different than historical methods they would use for any other historical source. And one of the things that I want to say as a historian with a degree in Biblical Studies, I want to say that we need to treat all of these as historical documents. We need to treat these like we would treat any other historical document and interpret them likewise. And so um, I, I think that this is a really extreme interpretive issue. I'm also a hardcore federalist and I think most libertarians are like that as well. I don't believe that the federal government should make decisions on almost any issue at all. And in reality, I think the original intention of the Ninth and 10th Amendment, the Ninth Amendment being the clause in the Constitution where the framers explicitly state that any right that is not enumerated in the Constitution is given over to the people, and then the 10th Amendment uh, is where any right that is not uh, granted to the federal government in the Constitution is given back to the states. I think that those are kind of the anchors of the Constitution. Um, And so... And then, too, as I get older and kind of see, like, especially after COVID, I see how decisions were made at the state level here in Kentucky. I think that the state is even too high of a level to make decisions on very controversial issues like abortion. Like, I have a big problem with the federal government being involved in education because I am a teacher at a public school. I know it's unfortunate, and one of these days I'll talk about that and kind of explain what I'm still doing there. But the federal government has no idea how the kids in my local... Community need to be taught, and then I figured out during COVID that the state really has no idea as well. And so I think a lot of these decisions about issues like this need to be made at the local level. People also forget, too, that the Ninth and Tenth Amendment are designed to be a check on government power. So we know that Thomas Jefferson and the writers of the Constitution were influenced by um, the Enlightenment philosopher Montesquieu, and Montesquieu very famously came up with the idea of separation of powers. He proposed that that a government should not allow power to be centralized in the hands of one person or one group of people. And so Montesquieu said that a government, if it was going to function correctly and, uh, and distribute power in a more helpful way, should be divided into an executive, a judicial, and a legislative branch. And that's the way that our federal government is set up. But then the writers of the Constitution divided power even further. And so the ninth and 10th Amendment are designed to even go past the separation of powers that Montesquieu proposed in the 18th century to devolve power to the state and more importantly to individual levels. And I think that this ultimately means that very contentious issues, especially issues that like abortion that don't have an, an obvious and easy philosophical uh, or theological answer, should be decided locally. And so it's true that—and another thing that I've noticed about this, I think that's really, really interesting, is that the people that are most lamenting Dobbs in the end of Roe v.ersus Wade, they live in states where abortion is already legal. Like, the, peop- the these people that are in New York and California, the day after the Dobbs decision, absolutely nothing changed for them and so they're very very upset about the fact that people in other states might have to fight for their particular understanding of abortion but it does but the decision didn't actually affect them at all and I think that when we live in a society where the federal government allows us to make more of these decisions at the local level that should take kind of the heat off a lot of these issues because again if you really want uh, if you really want uh, to give women Women the right to have an abortion in your state, then you should fight that out at the local level. And if there's a state like you know Alabama or wherever, where the majority of the people don't agree in abortion, they have a right to fight to ban it in their state as well. And again, with super contentious issues, such as abortion, issues that are very complicated, that have a lot of different, uh, that have a lot of different kind of, um, uh, parts or sides to them, the best way to decide these issues is at the local level. And this is what the conservatives are missing too, because at the end of the day, you know, the conservatives talk a big game about how they don't like the federal government and they want to lower taxes and they want to decrease the power of the federal government. But most of the conservatives that are taking a victory lap over Dobbs are happy that uh, are ha- they would be totally happy with the federal government imposing a blanket ban on abortion throughout the entire country. And I think that's also the wrong perspective to have on this as well. And so in my mind as a libertarian with as someone who also has a lot of conflicting views about abortion and whether or not it should be legal, this Dobbs decision is kind of like kind of like a very helpful step in the right direction to solving that problem. Again, I still don't know, and I'm willing to be convinced in, in either direction. So if you're listening to this and you would like to debate me on the show or at least come on and explain your perspective on whether or not you think abortion as a libertarian should be legal or illegal, I'd be happy to hear it because I'm not decided right now. But at the end of the day, I think that making these decisions at the local level actually gives people that have a vested interest in either side of the abortion debate, more of a say. And so from the, de- like the, pers- the perspective of the Democrats, this Dobbs decision really is a win for democracy because it means that the average person can fight for whether or not they want to have uh, this in their home state. And again, as I said before, I would love to even see states like Kentucky kick it back to the counties or the cities and say, hey, um, you need to talk to your city council and decide whether or not you want to uh, make the possibility of an abortion clinic available in your I think that's the right level to have this conversation at. If you don't want an abortion clinic in your city, then you should petition your city hall to do that uh, or to ban that. And then if somebody in another city in another part of the state wants to have an abortion clinic, you should allow them to do that as well. And so stepping back again, this Dobbs decision is a win for kind of these libertarian issues that we've all been advocating for for years. Nullification, essentially states saying that they're not going to follow the federal law, because again, states like California uh, have c- just come out and said that they're not going to change any of their uh, any of their regulations on abortion. Now, even though that's not what the Supreme Court decision was ultimately about, at least they're saying that they can nullify some of these federal laws, and that's great. Like I'm glad that states can uh, I'm glad that states can say no to the federal government. That's important. Decentrali- decentralization is another very important aspect of this case. The idea that decisions need to be made uh, at a uh, at a- a, uh, more and more local level and then of course one of the other things that I think is really powerful is the suspicion of judicial power and so Murray Rothbard in the anatomy of the state which we're going to talk about and I think in a two-parter here in a couple of weeks, Murray Rothbard has an entire chapter about how the Supreme Court is essentially a rubber stamp for federal government legitimacy because the entire idea behind the Supreme Court is that it's an independent judici- judiciary that they are, ju- they are th- just there to decide whether or not a law that's passed by the legislative branch is constitutional, but the problem that Murray Rothbard has with that, and he's absolutely correct, is that the judicial branch is a wing of the federal government. So instead of the the judiciary being independent, it's just another wing of the federal government giving approval or disapproval to decisions that are made at the federal level. And one of the problems with the Supreme Court is that when they decide on one of these cases, it gives the legitimacy that their decision is upholding the natural rights of the people of the country. And Rothbard talks about how that's often not the case, and that the Supreme Court is used to consolidate more power at the federal level. And I think that's a really important perspective to have when it comes to this. And as I've kind of read some of the news, and as I've been looking at what people are saying on Twitter, the conservatives and liberals are both agreeing with this, this libertarian perspective of uh, nullification and of uh, suspicion for judicial power that uh, the conservatives and the, the liberals are saying now the Supreme Court maybe shouldn't be the best place or the best, um, the best center of power to make these decisions and it's refreshing to see uh, Democrats and Republicans both saying that states need to be able to make a lot of these decisions on their own so in reality the Dobbs decision is a big win for libertarian philosophy. I think that's one of the great things to come out of this. There are a couple of other issues that are related to this politically too that I think that are positive from a libertarian perspective. So if you live in, a, if you're, let's say you're a progressive and you live in a state like California, and let's just say for the sake of argument that Nevada decides to ban abortions, then why not start like a charity or a private aid group to give money to women in states that can't get an abortion so that they can travel to a state where they can get it and receive that abortion? Like why do we need the government to provide that for? People, if charity and private aid groups can step in and fill the gap. And for someone like me who's gone to church my entire life and has always donated to my church, I really believe in the power of private charity to solve real problems in the community. I think one of the, one of the flaws of progressivism that this exposes is that you have all these extremely wealthy people that are in favor of abortion, that live in states where abortion is perfectly legal, where the Dobbs decision does not affect them in any single way, but they don't entertain the idea that they might have to give up some of their money if they want to help other people obtain an abortion. Why not start a private aid group? Why not start a charity? That would be a more decentralized, more democratic way of making sure that women in other states, if you really care about their right to access to abortion, can go and get those abortions. And this is something that Christian charities have always been very good at. And I think part of the progressive mind is they believe, the I think the welfare state has just hollowed out a lot of people's ability to think that maybe if the government didn't take so much of our money in taxes, we'd actually be able to give it to charities and to uh, aid groups that, that help the community in ways that we thought were better beneficial. So that's one solution to this. And then the other thing, the other area that's really, really, really easy for the government to change is the foster and the adoption system. In 2021, my wife and I, we only have one kid and we uh, biologically are not going to be able to have another kid. And so in 2021, we went through classes in our state. If you want to adopt a kid or if you want to foster, you have to go through, I think a six or an eight week program. And so my wife and I did this in 2021 and we were thinking, we really Wanted to adopt a child. Like that was our goal. And there are a ton of children that don't have parents that need a good home. And we did our research and we talked to a lot of people about it. And so when we were doing our research on adoption, we talked to some families that had done it. And the laws surrounding adoption are so complicated and so difficult. And it's incredibly expensive for the parents that want to adopt a child to funded like it it it's, it was going to cost us essentially in the state of Kentucky about $40,000 in legal and other fees to adopt a child that doesn't have parents or that has parents that don't want them. And then we decided that maybe that wasn't going to work for us because we didn't have the money to afford that at the time, so maybe we could be foster parents. But the foster system is so complicated and so convoluted that we just realized that it wasn't going to work for our family at the time. And so this is one of those issues that should get a ton of bipartisan support. Why is it so difficult for parents that want to adopt a child or that want to foster children that live in unstable homes why is it so difficult for them to get their hands on them? And this is all government regulation. Like from top to bottom, the government controls the adoption system. They're the ones that require the legal fees and all of these other things that d- we could make changes to those issues like now. And this would make it a lot easier for people like me to adopt the babies of women that maybe uh, don't feel like they're in a position to have a child. Like we could fix that system and no one's having the conversation to fix it. So there are a lot of... there. are there's a lot of fallout from this that I think if people really put some, put some thought and, uh, and put, some, uh, put some work into it, we could make these systems a lot more functional. So to kind of summarize where we're at about halfway through this show, yes, uh, I do believe that abortion is immoral. I believe it's inconsistent with my values, both as a Christian and as a libertarian. I'm still very conflicted on whether or not I think abortion should be legal anywhere. But I think that the Dobbs decision pushing that right back to the states is a step in the right direction. And so that's where I sit on this issue right now. And fortunately, over the last couple of weeks, there has been, a very, uh, a very interesting debate as I said before, within the libertarian movement about abortion. And as always, it's kind of like the Mises people versus the reason people in the libertarian world that have been having this debate. And so um, Dave Smith and Tom Woods and then Radio Rothbard, which is a podcast that's produced by the Mises Institute, they have actually, I think, the best take on this of of any of the people that I've mentioned so far, and we'll talk about Radio Rothbard here in a couple minutes. But it's the kind of the Smith-Woods wing, the Mises wing, of the Libertarian Party that is against abortion, that they believe that life begins at conception and they think that the government has a right to ban abortions to protect the life of the unborn child in the the womb. And then there's the Reason Wing of the Libertarian Party that's pro-abortion, that believes that women have a right to get abortion and that were critical of the Dobbs decision because they believe that the federal government was stepping in and taking away a right that had been granted to them in Roe v. Wade. Now, the presentation of both Sides is like a classic example of groups that have different preconceptions about when life begins, and so uh, Dave Smith and Tom Woods on the episodes that they had on their podcast about uh, the Dobbs decision both see life as beginning at conception, and the reason side doesn't go that far. And and again, it's very interesting listening to the Reason Roundtable, and I'm gonna I'm gonna post a link to it there. They had. One of their writers, Damon Root, uh, as a guest on the Reason Roundtable, and he wrote a really good article for uh, those of you that are interested in kind of the pro-abortion side of this debate. He read, 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 wrote a really good article on Reason ma- for Reason Magazine. It said abortion rights under the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendment, and based on Damon Root's interpretation of the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendment, he believes that constitutionally speaking, women do have a right to the abortion. I would highly recommend getting on Reason and and reading that article, it's one of the best uh, kind of anti-Dobbs articles that I've read, and I would also recommend checking out the episode of the Reason Roundtable with Damon Root on the show, where they kind of talk about abortion and why they think the federalization of abortion is a bad idea. I don't agree with Reason's take on it. I don't agree with Damon's root or with Damon Root's take on the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendment, but I do think that it's a very fair and intellectual and well thought out perspective. And so, if you're uh, kind of more on the uh, on my side of it, where you think Abortion is immoral, and you're wondering why there are libertarians that uh, are against the Dobbs decision. Go and listen to that episode of the Reason Roundtable and read that article on Reason Magazine. Uh, and but then, for those of you guys that are like me, you need to listen to Dave Smith's episode of Part of the Problem and Tom Woods' episode of the Tom Woods Show where they talk about it. Now, Radio Rothbard is a weekly podcast it's put out by the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. Fantastic. All of their all of their podcasts are great. All of the articles that they publish for that site are great and they just have an incredible collection of kind of Austrian economic history, philosophy, all of that kind of stuff on their site. And on the episode that they had on Radio Rothbard, which again, I'm going to put a link in that in the show notes here, they they absolutely nail the issue because they realize and they spend a lot of time talking on their podcast, Podcast about how the Dobbs decision was ultimately about decentralization. And they have a discussion about kind of the legality of abortion without getting into the ethics of it. And so, Tho Bishop is like the, the he's a really intelligent guy. And he's the host of Radio Rothbard, and I love that they're able to talk about it from a strictly legal philosophical perspective without getting into kind of like emotional, uh, an emotionally driven argument about you know whether or not abortion is about the rights of women or babies or any of that thing. No, on that episode of Radio Rothbard, they just talk about it from a legal perspective, and they talk about how in reality this is a huge win for decentralization and maybe even nullifications. Perfect. Uh, Ryan McMakin, I think, is the other Mises. Institute scholar who is on that episode of Radio Rothbard, and he has an excellent article at Mises.org, and that article is titled "To Avoid Civil War, Learn to Tolerate Different Laws in Different States." And in uh, the opening section, he's got a paragraph, and I want to I want to read this paragraph to you because I think it it, it absolutely nails why this Dobbs decision is so good from a libertarian perspective. And so he says this, and this is, uh, again, Ryan McMakin writing over uh, at the Mises Wire, uh, Mises.org. He says, moreover, decentralizing abortion policy in this way, the way that the Dobbs decision did, actually works to diffuse national conflict. This is becoming even more important as cultural divides in the United States are clearly accelerating and become more entrenched. Rather than fight with increasing alarm and aggression over who controls the federal government, and thus who imposes the winner's preferences on everybody else, people in different states will have more choices in choosing whether to live under pro-abortion or anti-abortion regimes. In other words, decentralization forces policymakers to behave as they should in a confederation of states. They must tolerate people doing things differently across state lines. This will be essential in avoiding disaster, and laissez-faire liberals, i.e. classical liberals, have long supported decentralization as a key in avoiding dangerous political conflicts. Ludwig Mises, for example, supported decentralization because, as he put it, it is the only feasible and effective way of preventing revolutions and civil wars. Great perspective on this. I'm going to put a link both to that article and the episode of Radio Rothbard. If you kind of want to get a, a good libertarian take on this issue, definitely check out. Uh, definitely check that out. Um, because it's going to really help you have another perspective. Uh, John Stossel over at Reason has a debate between Carrie Baldwin. Carrie Baldwin, I've I've listened to a lot of her stuff recently. She's a part of the Christian Libertarian Institute, and she is uh, pro-life. And she's debating with another libertarian, Evans O'Brien, who is pro-choice. And uh, John Stossel has them both on to kind of have a video debate. So you can watch that over at Reason. It's really, really good. And I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes here. So again, it just Goes to show you that there are lots and lots of different perspectives that libertarians can have on abortion. And all of these are based in part on the non aggression principle. And they're all based on kind of these big philosophical uh, and legal ideas. And so again, to kind of wrap up the uh, the the first or the I guess the the first and second third of this episode here, we got one more one more thing I want to talk about before we wrap up for the day here to kind of wrap this up again. It is possible within libertarianism to have a debate about these issues. The two points that I want to make is that you cannot settle the abortion debate with science because science does not allow us to answer metaphysical questions. And a person's approach to abortion is always going to be based on their biases and their presuppositions. It's going to be based on their worldview, and there's no way to get around that. There's no way to have an objective conversation about abortion. We just cannot do it. Everyone is shaped by their worldview and I also want to make the point secondly that in reality the Dobbs decision isn't about abortion it's about decentralization it's about states rights and it's about the very important libertarian principle of making political decisions at the lowest possible level and so from that perspective I think Dobbs is uh, a very good step in the right direction and even though I think abortion is uh, definitely murder and I do not believe that abortion uh, vi- I, I do believe that abortion violates my moral principles as a Christian, I still am not 100% sure how I feel about it being completely criminalized or made completely illegal. Okay. So there's kind of my, my political and legal and philosophical take on the abortion issue. But this is the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. And one of the things that I have argued consistently for on this podcast is that as a Protestant, my only source of authority is the Bible. That's what separates the Protestant movement from other branches of Christianity. And we've run into the problem already in this show that the Bible doesn't have any explicit teaching on abortion. So as as a Christian, how do we kind of get our head around the way in which Christians have traditionally understood the abortion issue? Well, Michael Gorman, the I didn't I didn't intend for him to become the scholar that we talk about every single episode, but he's got a really great small book that he wrote in I believe 1981. So this was you know only eight years after Roe v.ersus Wade had been implemented at the judicial level, and this book is called Abortion in the Early Church, and uh, the subtitle is Christian, Jewish, and Pagan Attitudes in the Greco-Roman world. And so he tries to locate the beliefs of the earliest Christians within the context of the Greco-Roman world. And he has this really great um, contextual kind of historical understanding of the way in which the ancients would have understood abortion. And it turns out that abortion was just as common, uh, and uh, there were just as many reasons and methods for obtaining an abortion as there are today. And so as we get into the final section of the show here, I I want to go over a couple of the arguments um, that—not arguments, but I want to go over some of the historical evidence that Michael Gorman presents in this book. And so I'm going to read a couple sections here. So the, the, the book opens with a chapter on the motives and the methods of abortion. So why was it that people in the ancient world got an abortion, and how did they go about getting an abortion? And so he has a great paragraph on the motives here, and they're not that much different than the reason why people get abortions today. So here's what Michael Gorman says. Motives for obtaining an abortion were no less varied in antiquity than they are today. By far the most frequent reason was to conceal illicit sexual activity. Rich women did not want to share their wealth with lower class children fathered illegitimately. Another reason was to preserve sex appeal. For many women, especially the rich, did not enjoy the effects of pregnancy on their figures, preferring not to get big and trouble the womb with bouncing babes. As Chrysostom said of prostitutes, they had a view of drawing more money by being agreeable and an object of longing to their lovers. Both Plato and Aristotle, and we'll talk about them in more in a minute, recommended family limitation by abortion if necessary, and the declines in population of the Roman Empire at the time of Augustus and again after Hadrian were probably due in part to such action by both rich and poor the wealthy did not want to share their estates with many offspring, while the poor felt unable to support large families. Justinian's Digest mentions a woman who aborted after a divorce in order not to have a child by the man she then hated. Abortion was also a corrective to the many inefficient means of contraception. Finally, abortions for therapeutic reasons, these are abortions that, uh, that were done to preserve the health of the mother, were also performed. And so again, a lot of the same arguments that people make for why women should be able to have abortions today were the reasons why people had abortions in the ancient world. Michael Gorman then goes on to talk about the different methods that were used to obtain an abortion in the ancient world. And it was a combination of kind of chemical concoctions, which were extremely dangerous to the life of the mother, because again, they did not have modern medicine back then. And so it was often these very toxic combinations of chemicals that women would drink. And oftentimes women would die during the abortive process because of those. So that was kind of the chemical method of aborting a baby. And then you also had the physical methods as too. a doctor uh, as before the baby was born could uh, go inside the womb of a, a woman and kind of cut up the baby and pull it out. That was very dangerous, could lead to infection and all kinds of things. But then also pregnant women would tie like a a, a band around their waist really tight in hopes of kind of suffocating or strangling the baby in the womb. Uh, Some women would have others hit them in the womb. So again, in the ancient world, they had methods of abortion, and a lot of these methods of abortion were commonly practiced. And then added to that, Michael Gorman doesn't talk about it much in this book, but there was a very common practice of exposure where the woman would have the baby, but if the baby had some sort of deformity or defect or if the baby was a gender that the parents didn't want or if the baby was seen as a burden to the family, they would expose or leave the baby out in the wilderness to uh, to either be taken by other people or to be eaten by animals or to die of starvation or of natural causes. So there were lots and lots of ways in the ancient world for people to obtain an abortion and a lot of methods to do so. And those don't, even though, from a clinical and safety perspective, it's much easier and much safer to obtain an abortion today. Um, you know, at, at base, the motives and the methods for abortion were not, not a lot different than the ones today. And so I want to read another section here, though. Uh, as we said before, both Plato and Aristotle, both these Greek philosophers supported abortion. So Michael Gorman has a section on this that I think is really inter- interesting from a libertarian perspective. So Michael Gorman asks, why did both Plato and Aristotle support abortion? It is highly unlikely that Either philosopher condoned abortion generally or for personal convenience. And here's where it gets interesting. Gorman says, rather, Plato and Aristotle each held a utilitarian view of the individual, born or unborn, seeing that individual as existing for the state. No rights granted to the individual were absolute. All rights, even the right to life, were subordinate to the welfare of the state or the family, the religion, or the race, and had to be sacrificed if the best interest of the states demanded it. Because territory was limited, one major concern of Greek city-states was the problem of overpopulation and consequent poverty and weakness. This concern at least partially explains the philosopher's application of their utilitarian and subordinate view of the individual to the newborn or unborn, issuing admonitions to expose or abort those that might be useless or damaging to the state. I think it's really interesting from a libertarian perspective that the early arguments in favor of abortion were that abortion benefited the state, that the lives of individual people didn't matter. What mattered was the state. And if abortions needed to be obtained to further the ends of the state, then that should be valued as completely legitimate. And as libertarians, regardless of where you're at on this issue, the idea that these Greek philosophers supported abortion as a means to Strengthening the state should at least give us uh, some, some thought to pause and maybe reflect on the way that we think about abortion. Now, Michael Gorman is going to go on to talk about abortion in the Greco-Roman world uh, during the height of the Roman Empire. Michael Gorman says that, uh, that abortion is incredibly common and that there were various views on abortion. There were a lot of people uh, for various reasons within the Roman world that thought abortion was completely legitimate. They made statist arguments for abortion as well. Um, but there were several groups, especially the Stoic philosophers, and there there's a large overlap between kind of Stoic ideas and early Christian ideas, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that the Apostle Paul was probably taught some Stoic philosophy in his childhood home of Tarsus. Um, but the Stoics condemned abortion as contrary to nature. But regardless of where you were at in the Roman world, there was no real concern for the fetus. So the, the main issues were about the state, about the fetus, Family and about the strength of society. And so, people that were pro abortion in the Roman world would say that abortion could benefit the state, it could benefit the family, it could benefit society. And people like the Stoics that were against abortion made the same issue just in the opposite direction, that we shouldn't abort babies because that goes against nature and could harm the state, harm the family, harm the society. Now, the Jewish literature of antiquity, and Michael Gorman has a chapter where he summarizes what the what, what the Jews think about this in antiquity, they completely reject abortion. But there were many Jewish thinkers that gave a concession for therapeutic purposes. So in other words, if you have a mother who uh, whose life is threatened by the fetus, Uh, then in that instance, an abortion was acceptable because from the Jewish perspective, the standard Jewish perspective, the mother was more important than the fetus in that instant. The mother had to run the household. The mother had a very important role to play. And so if the mother's life was in danger, then the Jewish perspective on this gave the kind of a therapeutic option for abortion. And unlike in the Greco-Roman world, in the Jewish world, there was an attempt to respect the life of the unborn. And so, Jewish thinkers are going to talk about the degree to which um, f- the, the degree to which fetuses babies within the womb deserve the same kind of status as uh, children and as adults but they at least gave respect to that they would have considered uh, that the fetus inside of the womb was an actual life created by God and a lot of the conversation within Jewish communities in the ancient world had to do with of course ritual purity uh, issues of the law if a woman gets an abortion where does she stand vis-a-vis the law. What happens to a baby who is born too early? Uh, ritual impurity and things like that. So, issues that Jewish law generally covers were the kinds of issues that were brought into the conversation about abortion. Although there is a complete and total rejection of any sort of convenience abortion within Judaism, even though there were plenty of, uh, even though there were plenty of Jews that thought that therapeutic abortion, abortions to save the life of a mother, were within the scope of the law now. Michael Gorman talks about how various Jewish groups have kind of different ways of interpreting the Jewish law in terms of punishing women that conduct in an abortion. And so there are some Jews that are very lenient. If a woman gets an abortion, it's more like a slap on the wrist, uh, and and uh, there's some sort of ritual cleansing that goes along with that. To other Jews that thought that women that received an abortion should be kicked out of the community or maybe even killed. The agreement there was that it was wrong, and it was really more of a debate as to the extent to which abortion should be punished within the Jewish community. Now, the early Christians are going to be very influenced by the Jews in their understanding of Abortions. And so before the time of Constantine, Michael Gorman says this about the first three Christian centuries. So it says, Writers of the first three Christian centuries laid the theological and literary foundation for all subsequent early Christian writing on abortion. We will see that three important themes emerged during these centuries. And so these are the themes that come out of the writings of the early church fathers. And these three themes are number one, that the fetus is the creation of God all the way up into conception. Number two, that abortion is considered murder by the earliest Christian and number three that the judgment of God falls on those that are guilty of abortion and so these are the three ideas that emerge out of the earliest church and there's almost no evidence that before the Edict of Milan in 313 when Constantine makes Christianity a legal religion within the Roman Empire there's no evidence that there was anyone within the Christian community that supported abortion now Michael Gorman is going to go on to talk about Christianity and their views on abortion after the Edict of Milan, after 313. And obviously as it's easier for more and more people to become Christians after the Edict of Milan. There were more and more Christians that practiced abortion. But the Christian intellectual community continues to universally condemn it. So there are no, just, just like in the Jewish world of antiquity, the uh, Greco-Roman world of late antiquity, and then kind of the early Middle Ages, there are no Christian authors that condone abortion outside of therapeutic purposes. There are Christian authors that believe, just like the Jews, that a woman has the right to get an abortion if her life is legitimately threatened, uh, but it is universally condemned. And the discussion after the Edict of Milan turns not to whether or not abortion should be legitimate, but to, uh, but, but it turns to whether or not uh, how much grace and forgiveness the church should give to women that receive an abortion, that take an abortion. And so it's a very interesting argument that's being made in the earliest church there. But Michael Gorman's main point in this book is that unanimously in the early uh, or in, the, in the Jewish world of late antiquity and in the early Christian movement, abortion was always considered illegitimate. Now, Michael Gorman's going to make the case in this book, too, that if you read kind of the later uh, thinkers, uh, the later Christian thinkers of antiquity, they're all going to kind of err on the side of grace. That yes, when women get an abortion, it's a sin, but the church has a right to come alongside them. They might have to do penance or offer some sort of sacrifice to the church, but ultimately grace and mercy should be extended to women that get abortions, and I think that that's a very, very good position to take. Now, there's a lot of really, really great stuff in this book about sexual ethics and things like that. We don't have time to get into it that today, but when Michael Gorman sums up his argument for the way in which the, under, the, the early church stood understood abortion, he's going to say this. I'm gonna read this, this last section here from Michael Gorman's book, and it says, the earliest Christian ethic from Jesus to Constantine can be described as a consistent pro-life ethic. It was in favor of human life regardless of age, nationality, or social standing. It pleaded for the poor, the weak, women, children, and the unborn. This pro-life ethic discarded hate in favor of love, war in favor of peace, oppression in favor of justice, bloodshed in favor of life. The Christian's response to abortion was one important aspect of this consistent pro-life ethic. Rooted in Jewish love for life and hatred of bloodshed, it developed a specific Christian character as part of early Christian holistic discipleship. To follow Jesus was to forsake bloodshed. And this is one of the points that Michael Gorman makes really, really well in this book is he talks about how a lot of people on either side of the abortion debate are extremely hypocritical. For Michael Gorman, the early church had this nonviolent ethic. They were committed to the belief that Christians should not harm other people, and they viewed abortion as a violation of that principle, that an abortion harmed the fetus that was within the mother, and therefore Christians that were committed to nonviolence should also be committed to being against abortion because abortion was an act of violence. But he talks about how a lot of people today that consider themselves pro-life that don't believe that abortion should be legal are quite happy with things like, government, like state-sponsored execution, the death penalty. They're quite happy with warfare, with nuclear weapons, and things like that. And so he talks about how it's hypocritical for people to be pro-life but then also to be in favor of violence being inflicted on other people people in other areas of society and he also talks about how pro-choice people believe that they should have uh, that these there are a lot of pro-choice people that believe that women should have a right to an abortion but they don't want to give other people choices and other issues as well and so what Michael Gorman says is that he asks his audience to be consistent that your views on abortion should be consistent with all of your other values and so to wrap this all up If, as libertarians, we are committed to the non-aggression principle, then our views on abortion need to be filtered through that principle as well. So a very good way to tie this book up. Again, this book is called Abortion and the Early Church. I think you can get it on Amazon for just a couple of bucks. It is old, but it's a very good crash course to kind of the ancient understanding of abortion and then how Jews and Christians in antiquity understood it. Speaking of consistency, though, it wouldn't be right of me to end an episode where we talk about a book that deals with political issues from a Christian perspective without pointing out the economic inconsistencies in Michael Gorman's thinking. And again, I've said it on this show many times, Michael Gorman is one of my all-time absolute favorite New Testament scholars. We're going to have an episode on his massively important book called Cruciformity here in a couple of months. I'm working on that right now. And so I don't want to always make it seem as if I'm I'm being hard on my Michael Gorman. But, uh, again, Michael Gorman is very anti-imperial and all of his, and he's been consistently against state sponsored violence and against empire since the beginning of his career. And so in this section in abortion in the early church, where he's talking about how people need to be consistent in their principles, um, again, he locates abortion within the early church's wider understanding that they had a responsibility to be committed to nonviolence. And so he quotes an early Christian writer, uh, Writer named Lactantius, who wrote in the late third century and wound up being an advisor for Constantine, and Lactantius discusses. Lactantius has a passage in one of his works where he discusses the problems with Roman nationalism. He talks about why it's inconsistent from a Christian perspective to kind of be a Roman nationalist. And this is uh, this is Lactantius's quote that Michael Gorman. Michael Gorman includes in this book. And he says this comes from Lactantius. And again, this is about why Christians should no longer pledge complete allegiance to the Roman Empire. So Lactantius says this, for what are the interests of our country, but the inconveniences of another state or nation that is to extend the boundaries, which are evidently taken from others to increase the power of the state. Here it is to improve the revenues All which things are not virtues but the overthrowing of virtues, for in the first place the union of human society is taken away, the abstaining from the property of another is taken away. That's interesting. Lastly, justice itself is taken away, which is unable to bear the tearing asunder of the human race. And wherever arms have glittered, must be banished and exterminated from thence. For how can a man be just who injures, who hates, who despoils, who puts to death? And they who strive to be serviceable to their country do all these things. Is the laurel of triumph made up of leaves or of corpses? Is it decorated with ribbons or tombs? Is it besmeared with ointments or with the tears of wives and mothers? Perhaps those. Of some men, even who are Christians for Christ, is among the barbarians as well. What's interesting here is that Lactant or Lact, La, gosh, Lactantius criticizes the economic policies of empire, and he he, he says very specifically in this passage that one of the functions of the state is to improve its revenue, and it does this by taking away property from other people. And he says that Christians shouldn't support this. And so in the third episode, uh, and, in, and in many episodes of the show, we've critiqued the way in which anti-imperial biblical scholars are often proponents of large government redistribution programs. So we have these biblical scholars that are very concerned about empire and warfare, and rightly so, but they don't make the connection that it is the government taking away our wealth. That is also an extension of that imperial state power. And Michael Gorman includes this quotation from Lactantius, where Lactantius, an early Christian, says it's inconsistent for Christians to support state confiscation of other people's wealth. And so Michael Gorman is... 100% accurate here that Christians need to be consistent in their understanding of abortion, that their understanding of abortion needs to fit into a larger kind of Christian ethic of non-violent, but I would also love to see Michael Gorman and other biblical scholars take the economic critique of empire in writers like Lactantius seriously. Supporting socialist economic policies, taxation and redistribution in general are all manifestations of empire, which, from a Christian perspective, is deeply problematic. If we're going to be consistent about abortion and nonviolence, we need to be consistent about empire and confiscation. I give you that as kind of a postscript, just something to think about. All right. So I'm not going to do the next week segment at the end of the show anymore. If you guys listen to episode 9.1, I gave you an update on the show. Uh, You guys can go back and listen to that. But again, not uh, numbering the episodes at the beginning and not having a next week segment gives me a little more flexibility to do episodes of this show when big issues come up in society again this show is always going to be a big ideas show it's not going to become a current event show but I want to be flexible and I want to incorporate incorporate more current events episodes and I also want to do timely interviews like I've reached out to a lot of people I'm trying to get some interviews lined up and so while I have kind of the next month or two of this show planned out already I want to be able to kind of insert episodes where I see fit so again I'm always open for suggestions hit me up on on Twitter at ProLibertyPod or send me an email. I really, really appreciate you guys listening to this show and uh, we'll be back next Tuesday. I'll see you guys then. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. If you have any questions or comments or thoughts about the show, please reach out to me at theprotestantlibertarian at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at ProLibertyPod. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at ProLibertyPod. You can also support the show by leaving a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.